with support from the National Performance Network and the Alaska State Council on the Arts workshop, and all members, and too many funders to name, we are really lucky to be here hosting you as artists and residents for October. Thank you, Teresa. Well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, thank you for getting me out of Fairbanks before the first snow, which apparently is tomorrow, so thank you. <laughs> And um, yeah, thank you so much again to all the donors and such. I'm really looking forward to the residency, so I'll be here for a month. Or, and feel free to just ask any questions. We'll be doing a little bit of a few workshops from beading to uh, the lutic uh, weaving and such. But uh, as you've probably seen, I do a variety of different styles and techniques. And uh, a lot of this kind of came in from my background. So I am actually an indigenous artist. I'm part of the Ketchikan Indian community, so that's out of uh, Ketchikan. But um, I'm not an Alaska Native artist, so I'm unique. Where I'm part of a federally recognized tribe in Alaska, but because I'm Posto Salish from Washington area and from the Flathead of Montana Reservation area, I can't necessarily say I'm an Alaska Native artist, but I am a member of Alaska Native tribe. <laughs> and that is the introduction to regulatory theory and why I started going into laws and regulations where even defining what I am is complicated and that kind of spiraled into it. Uh, my father and my grandfather on my paternal side were actually uh, wildlife enforcement officers so I grew up really nerdy with a lot of different uh, biology and uh, animals coming in. I think one of my more interesting ones was dealing with uh, eagles being brought into the, the house. Um, we even had to wrangle some raccoons once and such. So I was introduced to the biology and kind of went in and even earned my master's in wildlife biology. But working around with permits and regulatories and wildlife, it also blended more into the native arts permitting and the regulatory theory behind what it takes to be a native artist and how you define native art materials. So it can be very broad, it can be very uh, specific, and that's kind of what we started with this gallery exhibition right here, is kind of describing and talking about the regulatory permits. Mm. Uh, this piece right here is actually a little interesting. This is talking about all the diverse managers. One of the first things I found out uh, me being a nerd and not everybody being a nerd too and just uh, working of the general public and such. I knew all these logos by name. I knew biologists. They knew me when I was knee high and such. And just saying, oh yeah, you want to be able to go out and harvest cedar bark. Well, make sure you talk to Alaska Department of Fish and Game for the axis and other routes and such for four-wheelers. But then if you want the actual grass, you need to go to DLL and such. And they're like, what? <laughs> Like, can I just get the permit of fish and game? They do everything? Like, uh, no, forest products. What? Oh, the non-timber forest product manual. Have you read it? The what? <laughs> and that's kind of spurred this and such. These are just an example of all the different agencies that manage a single watershed. So when you talk about management in the state of Alaska, it's not just one agency. You have everything from the ocean to NOAA, then you have the U.S. Forest Service, Fish and Game, the National Parks, the Forest Service, and then DNR. So you have all these different managers that actually contribute to the, the landscape, but you also need to navigate around through all the regulatory permits and their jurisdictions as well. And that's what this piece here, and this kind of inspired the entire exhibition 
discussing about regulatory theories. Now this one right here with the Bureau of Land Management, this was actually another acute one, but uh, if you work in the department for a while with the differences between the Fed and the state, Feds are known for actually having nice uniforms. Sometimes they're dry clean only. Um, <laughs> fish and game, we have a hat. That, that is it. It is literally a baseball cap. If you're fancy, it's a nice little insulated hat, but it's a hat. That is your uniform, and that is how we identify you as being fish and game. Same applies with other agencies, too. And this is the Borough of Land Management. I found this on Kodiak. It was ripped off a hat. It was covered in, I don't know what it was, but I ran it through the washing machine several times, cleaned it up. That's the best I got it cleaned. But I wanted to kind of show the illustration of working and earning that grime. And that's what this trophy is here, is just the amount of work. And I was amazed on so many people going like, wait, there's BLM in Alaska? And, no, <laughs> like, no, they earned that hat, they earned that badge. And that's kind of started off a little more of these other aspects talking about history. Um, this one right here is a US Forest Service uh, logo. When you're talking with form line, there's very distinct shapes. There's the ovoid, there's the U shape, and the S shape. I, I kid you not, they're called that. So when you're joking around of clinket form line and such, you hear the U, S, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to do that. <laughs> And this is the Tongass National Forest. So you have the US Forest Service representing the Tongass National Forest, all the trees and salmon berries along the edge right there. And it's kind of taking this aspect of working with the Forest Service and also recognizing a lot of the members in the Forest Service who are actually are Clinket and such. And that's what this whole piece right here is, the collaborative nature of it. Now, over on this corner here, you're gonna see some of the forest cars. And I kid you not, this is the terminology. You have special used forest products or non-timber forest products. They mean the exact same thing. It's just one's used by the state, one's used by the feds. Don't get them confused because they have different manuals. And when you're looking at it, they actually permit the harvest of it. The whole point is when you're going through and doing commercial artwork. So you're planning to go harvest grass to make a basket to be sold as commercial art you have to go through and get permits on that. And when you're getting it for permits and such, they have an entire manual. That manual establishes not only the seasons, the harvest methodology, and even gives you ideas on how to locate and find these different areas and even preferences of the animals in different regions. So with even Cedarburg, they recommend you take dead trees first. Then they have a season. Then they have the amount of materials you're allowed to harvest. And they also have all these other permits and such. You have to file these and such every year. And it's interesting when you're talking with a lot of artists that are used to personal use, because personal use, they don't go in and highly regulate it as much. As long as you don't go crazy harvesting too much, it's okay to harvest. But when you're transitioning to become a commercial artist, you have a huge manual, and they differ between state and fed lands. And that's what these pieces right here, study of birch bark, that's an example of all the non-timber forest products for the state, and then study of cedar bark. Study of cedar bark, you can see the nice uh, cedar bark mat with the yellow and red cedar, but then you can see all the phloem and such of the inner bark that's directly harvested. That was actually harvested by my mother, and that's the width when you wrap it around. That's her actual width right there where she was wrapping and dried it that way. So I wanted to show like a traditional strip and you're only allowed one strip per tree. 
And that was an illustration when you're talking about regulatory and trying to illustrate what they're talking about with the manuals. So that's just one example over here. Um, sorry, why did you choose to put these um, emblems on a drum? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, dueling management and such. I'm not sure if you guys heard a little bit about uh, management of dual management in the state of Alaska. Who has? I got a few laughs. <laughs> so long story short, um, we disagree based on the Alaska State Constitution on priority. In the state constitution, everyone has equal access. That is written on our state constitution. Unless we change it, that's under state management for all wildlife and fisheries and such. You can't have that kind of priority. Now, when we had Anilk and Ainsa come through, they wanted to be able to establish subsistence priority for access for resources. The problem was that conflicted, that rule priority conflicted with the state constitution. So at that time frame, they said, okay, Board of Game, Board of Fish, change, change it. And then we'll change the state constitution to match with federal law. Uh, it, we tried, we tried. There were several court cases and there were actual several attempts by the Board of Game and Board of Fish, but we never jived which means we have two separate managements. So when we talk about uh, hunting and such, you have different hunting regulations and laws on federal land and state land and such. A lot of times they tend to jive and be the same in those particular areas, but sometimes they differ and such. And that's what dueling drums is talking a little bit about, is that kind of argument and such of like, who has jurisdictional management over this particular herd that migrates across their jurisdictions? And this case right here, you can see the birds and such on them too. So these are the eiders that are actually managed by federal because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And then you can see the state bird and such because they're non-migratory, so they're under state jurisdiction. And it's this kind of joke a little bit about dueling jumps and like, it's my bird, it's my bird. And it's my caribou, it's my caribou. And that's dueling drums is just a joke kind of beating your own drum. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That fisheries is a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> so over here, we have a few of my uh, beaded pieces and such. And this is actually looking at some of the species. So we have uh, the wolverine paw right here, which is a fur bear and such. And you can actually go in and buy the hides and hands and such because they're a very wonderful fur bear economy in the state of Alaska. But we also have a trophy industry as well. So when you're looking at trophies and you're looking at different fur bears and animals, it's got to be careful on what you actually utilize for personal use and then whether or not you change it into a commercial commodity. So the way you define the difference between what you can use for personal and what can be commercially sold is under state law, you can't sell trophies. It's just you can't do it. And the way to make sure you do it is you have to destroy the trophy value. A lot of that is making sure that it cannot be transitioned back into a trophy which usually involves permanently cutting up the hide, stitching it back together, putting a backing onto it. So there's a lot of regulations that go into utilizing it for commercial artwork. But there's less when you come into the definition of fur bear. So you can actually sell these little paws right here as long as it's cut and tanned and actually done it along those lines. But at trophy animals, such as big game, that comes up here, the black bear with the bag right here. So I did this beautiful beaded right in this long here. It's all nice leather. And then I have the nice black bear hide with the claws attached. Claws attached. It's now a trophy. 
Now, if I cut the claws off and just did a section of black bear hide and it's tan, it would be legal to sell. But since it's got a claw, it's trophy. So I can't legally sell it, but that doesn't stop uh, personal use. So there's a lot of people that actually enjoy making these personally by going in and actually going to some of the fur bearers or trappers or even some of the local fur bearer seller wholesalers and buying some of these areas and such for like beavers or hides or even going out and hunting them themselves and turning them into bags for personal use. The difference is, is just let's say this was given to you by your grandfather, you think it's tacky, you want to sell it, nope, it is still a trophy unless you cut those things off and modify it so it can no longer be a trophy. And that's kind of that funny thing is you have people like, I don't want my grandfather's taxidermy doll sheep. I don't want my grandfather's bison head. What do I do? There are a few permits that allow you to sell taxidermy if there's basically a divorce, I think, and then there's a, there's a few other, yeah. And talk to your local fish and game officer. They usually help you navigate those regs. But usually if somebody dies or somebody divorces. <laughs> and this one right here is a beaver bag. And because it's a fur bear, you can sell a lot of the different parts. But this one I wanted to feature something that not everybody thinks about with the beaver. A lot of times people think about the beaver fur. It's some of the greatest quality you'll be able to find. There's just not that many tanners who do beaver tails anymore. And you can feel along the edge ridges right here. It's a nice heavy duty leather, but it's got such a beautiful texture. But it's very rare to find these nowadays because people aren't really having much demand. So a lot of times people will go out and they'll have to go and tan them themselves and be where they hunt. I was lucky enough to find a processor, a fur tanner that actually did the tails. So I was able to directly purchase them. But it's one of those uh, art forms and materials that you don't just necessarily see very often. And it's just a shame because it's not as well known as the other part of the animal, which is the fur. But trying to utilize more of the animal, you can kind of see that beautiful detail and design. And that's part of this uh, beaver bag is looking at the animal as a whole and looking at all the parts that can be utilized. And you can sell both sides, the tail and the head and the fur and whatnot and the skulls and yeah, and because it's a fur bear. Now this piece right here, again, is talking about that significant modification. And it's kind of that reminder when you're going through and actually looking at fur bears and the big trophies and such about modifying it. But this symbol right here, I'm not sure how many of you guys know much about uh, Yupik uh, cultural uh, symbolism. But when you're looking at it in the spiritual realm, you don't want to be hoarding of materials. You want to share. So when you're sharing a lot of this, you want to make sure that you're able to pass on. And in the spirit world, you want to make sure that the spirits aren't greedy and they're not holding it on. So they would always put in a hole in the center of the hand so they couldn't grasp and keep everything in the spirit world. So it would be able to be available for harvest. Um, sometimes you would have a stubby little thumb. Sometimes it was cut off or such. But when I was making this piece, I was talking about degrees of modifications and looking at harvest. And one of the artists I was talking to told me, like, no, no, you got to cut the thumb all the way. It, trust me, this is fish and game. You want those regulations and harvest and bag limits to be liberal. You cut that thumb off. <laughs> and that was this piece right here is talking about uh, the significantly modification of going through and actually physically changing it and such, but still remembering and such the rest of the animals.
So going over to the other side, I talked briefly about significant modifications, and that's these pieces right up here. These are the caribou right here called trophy value. Now I already talked a little bit about trophy value. You probably wonder why this one is not for sale. It's very clear under state law, you cannot sell trophies. And one of the ways to make sure you convert antlers into non-trophies, you've got to remove all the part of the skull. So it's just the antler. If it's naturally shed, you can sell that on Craigslist and everything like that. But if you harvest it in sport or anything along those lines, you've got to make sure there is nothing that can be considered a skull plate. And then you have to significantly modify it into a handicraft. This right here, you may seem like, well, this is all wood. There's just the antler. But if you look on the back, there's a piece of skull. That piece of skull means I can use it for personal use and nothing else. Now, if I whack that off, it would look a little weird because I would actually have to give him an afro to cover it up. <laughs> and then it would be legal to sell. However, I decided I like the personal use of this. And it kind of represents more of a caribou. So I kept that skull, and it's only for my personal use because I illegally cannot sell it because it has a little bit of the skull still attached. I still had to give him a little bit of an afro, kind of like a pullover with moth stalks in here. But yeah, still, it <laughs> works. And that's talking about that trophy value. So this is another really cool piece, talking more about the materials themselves. So this is a comparative analysis of Native art materials. So this was a challenge piece of mine because I was very chaotic in how I stored my art. And I had bags and random stuff. And some of these things have to be kept in a dry area. Some of them can be thrown in the back of my car in the middle of winter so it doesn't rot. Again, Fairbanks winter, everything's great for a freezer in the back of your truck of your car. So this was me going through and actually looking at what I actually utilize. What do I currently have in my bags or in my car? And you can see everything from fish skin to all the different styles of beads, porcupine quills, beaver fur, fox fur, muskoxen. But then you can also see some of the form line patterns and such I was working on. These little guys right here are some uh, work I was doing on uh, basically uh, sun disks and such. So looking a little bit about the sand dollars, then going in and actually weaving all these tiny little bottles. Some of them actually have uh, stain twine. Some of them are actually wax linen. Others are embroidery floss. And you start seeing all the different materials from spruce roots to cedar bark to ryegrass to beeswax to even mountain goat wool. And it was this kind of joke of like, oh my gosh, I'm a hoarder of random animals. <laughs> if these were cats, I'd be a crazy cat lady. But it was all this scrounging of native art materials that I wanted to illustrate there because when you have a chance to get it, you get it. If you don't have it, it's gonna take even longer to be able to get that materials. You always collect when you have the opportunity and then you stash and store to be able to make that artwork. And that's kind of what this is saying a little bit there, is looking at that need and desire to hoard the materials so you have it when you start working with it. This piece right here is called miscellaneous shellfish. Pretty self-explanatory because that's how we define the octopus in the state of Alaska. They are miscellaneous. Uh, I kid you not, that's literally how we classify octopus under fish and game regulations. They're just miscellaneous. 
and they're not sockeye, they're not herring, they are miscellaneous shellfish because they're not gooey ducks. <laughs> and that always made me laugh. It's one of those like, well, you're not a popular thing, so we're just going to add you into a bin of miscellaneous. And I wanted to showcase that. <laughs> this is a unique piece right here. This is National Eagle Repository Bank. For those who don't know what this is, this is a bank for a federal registration under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. When eagles die naturally in the state of Alaska or across the U.S. and such, this is a place where people send those carcasses to. So they're processed and cleaned. So when Native Americans want to actually use eagle feathers or parts for ceremonies or regalia, they can register with the National Eagle Repository Bank and get those feathers back. And they can actually utilize it. So instead of going out and trying to harvest eagles, they can actually utilize the ones that die naturally. Um, again, my father and my grandfather are wildlife enforcement officers, so I was introduced to this concept pretty easy because live eagles got sent to the rescue center, dead eagles got thrown in a bag and cleaned and then shipped to a bank. And this is the base. This is actually talking a little bit about uh, the National Eagle Repository. And you can see all the feathers along the outside, but the coins. Back in the day when you're looking at button blankets, they used to actually use coinage. It was a way to show your wealth and prestige. So when you danced, you were physically dancing and carrying around your wealth. That went out of uh, favor during the Great Depression because currency was hard to come by. But I wanted to actually showcase this. So you can see the coppers, which are a symbol of wealth and prestige, with all the pennies. The pennies themselves are the new ones that actually show the copper shields. So each one of these shields is representing a clinket, hot, and shimshian. And you can see all the clinket, hot, and shimshian feathers with the eagles in the center with the feathers on the side. So this is an eagle bank, specifically for the clinket, hot, and the shimshians. And that's what this entire blanket is all about, is looking on the reverse side of my very Norwegian father, grabbing dead bald eagles, shoving them in the bag, sending them to the bank, and eventually I did get my eagle feathers. Not from my dad, because, yeah, he retired before I finally got them. It takes a while for fermenting. But I was finally able to actually get some eagle feathers, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of a roundabout way that a uh, decade later, yeah. <laughs> so that's this piece. Dual management of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So when you're talking of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there are a lot of people that actually contribute to the service. There's a very different levels from biologists to field technicians, and when you're looking at it, there's many hands. So in here, you can see the dual aspects where you have two fish and two uh, ducks in this area, and then all the many hands. It's trying to duplicate and look at the dual aspects of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They're not just protecting and looking at management. They're land managers, they also work at the fisheries in the land area, so they work and do many different things. And I wanted to show and illustrate all the different hands that actually come in and contribute just to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. NOAA Fisheries Management, this is actually a very similar Supiak style mask, and you can see all the different animals and such they actually regulate and permit. And I always joke and laugh about it, but you have, of course, halibut, you have a, a lot of the crab, and then you also have seals and whales. What's unique about that is you have the sharing of the Marine Mammal Protection Act between U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA. 
they actually make a distinction between polar bears and walruses and sea otters. Those are in U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Whales and seals and such are permitted through NOAA Fisheries Department. So if you have a little bit of a, a joke and such, it's the fisheries NOAA division that manages marine mammals. So yeah, it's one of those like, wait, what? And like, oh right, because they live in the sea, they're fish. <laughs> you can't take yourself seriously in science. <laughs> this is counting in the red. I'm not sure any of you guys know how fisheries management work, but there's some kind of grunt sitting on a river with tallywhackers going click, click, click. That's your escapement number that's being generated. When that's being generated, that's how we actually determine whether or not escapement is being met. And that's how we actually generate emergency orders for either opening or closing commercial fisheries or even shutting down personal use. The problem when you're actually counting fish is they don't like going single file. They overlap. So when you're counting in the red, you've got a mass. <laughs> And when they're going through a shoot and you're sitting there counting, you sometimes have to guesstimate and such. I remember them coming out with a modern technology that actually had scanning abilities to be able to try counting it that way. It took us a while to dial it. We once had a fish that lasted for 10 minutes. It was just one long fish. Uh, we recalibrated it, but we had somebody sitting there counting and laughing the whole time when it's showing one fish. But that was because they were literally just coming together as one giant mass. And that's what this piece are, is just that look of not taking yourself seriously when you're in fisheries management. <laughs> and sometimes it does take a monkey to go click, click, click. We haven't been able to get anything better than that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I skipped around, but I didn't want to take too much of your time. But uh, let me know if you have any questions. Um, and yeah. I'm curious to know how, um, you know, customary, you know, cultural bearers, say a maker, for mm -hmm. example, of a traditional um, Supiak-style plank mask, mm -hmm. feels about your witty inclusion of such, you know, kind of somewhat political and even sensitive themes around, you know, state and federal management of what I consider to be indigenous rights in terms of access to resources. And that's it. It's like we're having a conversation and we're having that debate and discussions. But the only way to change things is to have that discussion. You can't just change laws in a box. You can't have one side saying this is the way it's going to be without involving the other. You have to have discussions. You have to have debates. And you also have to actually sit down and talk and figure out what the needs are and what the want is. Sometimes it's like getting down together and figuring out what is needed, what is, how have things changed. The law was written a certain way at a certain time, at a certain cultural standpoint. Has it changed? Has the needs increased? And a lot of times the needs have increased because the state population has increased. Then looking at jurisdictions and naming, and when you start talking about it, you realize there are tools to be able to change it. We have Board of Fish, we have advisory councils and such. You can actually write board proposals to change the regulations and laws. You can actually talk to your state senators. You can talk to your US senators and such. A good example of that is the Morton policy. When you're looking at migratory birds, originally you could not sell anything that involved migratory birds. It's just straight up there was no on that. And there was reason for that. Back during the hat phase and such, 
in the early 1900s, entire populations were decimated of migratory birds so that people can have beautiful, fancy feathered hats. Entire populations were decimated. The Migratory Bird Act was one of the ways to try to protect it. Same thing with the Lacey Act. They were trying to protect and make sure people couldn't take those feathers and go across international borders and sell it in other areas or even other states. So there was a reason and purpose behind the laws. However, things have changed. And the Morton policies looking at certain species of migratory birds, when they're harvested during subsistence, you can use their inedible byproducts, which is a fancy term meaning feathers or claws or whatnot, for commercial native arts. They realized that when they were trying to preserve subsistence uh, abilities and practices, it was also the use of the inedible byproducts for barter and for trade and for commercial art. So they actually made a policy to allow individuals to utilize several of those species that were not endangered or anything like that. As long as you get a permitted form, you can actually sell those for commercial artwork. And that just recently happened. And that was working with US Fish and Wildlife Service. That was working with US senators and such and saying, hey, um, things have changed. We don't have the crazy hat trend anymore. And there's a need. And we need to make an exception. And this is how we do it. But what about um, customary art forms? Do you need to work with um, artists or elders to oh, yeah. feel um, a sense of um, authority or approval to make those kinds of adaptations? <laughs> and that is true. When you're What's talking. What's the question? Hmm? Uh, the question is um, is there a responsibility for? you know, permissions or what kind of accountability surrounds adaptation of traditional cultural forms, like the Sufiat plank mask, by, you know, including the Noah symbol, for example. So that's actually quite interesting. When I talk to a lot of the elders, I can't really use any of the traditional old stories because those are actually owned by the clans and such. A lot of the other aspects when you're looking at symbolism and such, I can't necessarily utilize them for the old stories that are culturally appropriated for that culture. So when I talked to Glenn Simpson, he was a Teleton native elder that I worked with, it's this awkward moment of like, well, shoot, I have nothing because I don't have anything. I'm just the indigenous artist that has, I mean, what, we lived in Alaska, but we're not really part of those clans, and I learned under elders. They taught me the wrong type of art. Do I have to ship myself down to an area and only do this particular area because that's what I'm allowed to do because that's my blood and I can only do my blood? And Glenn just started laughing at me. He's like, what are you talking about? I trained you Teltan Clinket. You're going to do Teltan. Like, why? Because I'm assimilating you. And it's like, wait, what? He's like, I taught you. I took the time to teach you. I want people to appreciate my form. I want them to know how hard it is. I want them to know what it is. I'm taking the time to continue the tradition. Yes, you can't use any of the old stories. You can't talk about any of those because they're owned. You can't dance any of those stuff. However, you have your current stories to tell. You have more to talk about right now as an artist that is have all this nerdy stuff to think about. Talk about your dad being a nerd, grabbing dead bald eagles and shoving them into a bag. That's how this happened. Start talking about Noah Fisheries and all these weird, wacky things. This is how this happened. And that's because I worked at the artists and such. I traveled around the state of Alaska. I worked around with a lot of other elders. And they started opening up classes for non-natives. And it wasn't this whole, you can never do this art form. It's, 
I want you to appreciate my culture. If I want you to care about this, if I want you to help me with permitting, if I want this culture to continue, I can't just keep it in the box. I gotta share that light. I gotta share it around. And that was very unique, where they started telling me, like, I want you to be able to weave these things. I want you to be able to be the artist. But you have to tell your own stories. You have to make your own stories. And you tell your stories that you're currently living now. Is there evidence of that happening historically? You know, if you go back to the 20s and 30s with contact in Alaska? You know, and it's on the reverse side. I think my favorite one was actually, uh, have you guys heard of the Billikens? Yeah, th that was not Alaskan whatsoever. That was Indonesian. Um, it was shipped up into the Nome area, and when they came in, people said, oh my gosh, they're selling these for what? Oh my gosh, I can make this thing out of ivory. And now all of a sudden when you say Billiken, everybody thinks Alaska. And it was people looking at that cultural area, looking at the commercial artwork, and actually making it their own. Some of them are beautiful. The same thing with the baleen baskets at that time frame. When you're looking at the baleen baskets, they originally were inspired by willowwood baskets. And they were brought up into the north. And we're not quite sure who originally was the first person to make the baleen baskets, but we think it happened in like 1914 to 1918, and that's when they started showing up. But it was men. It was a complete different change, and it was basically what we think Somebody commissioned an artist on the North Slope to be able to make a basket like that, and they used whatever material they had. So they copy and mimic a willow root basket that was similar to what you find in the interior in Baleen. And now when you look at these uh, traditional things, it's over 100 years, and now it's a very common, almost identifiable part of the Nupiak culture is the Baleen baskets. And it was just one guy continuing a culture and making it his own. And that's it. Culture grows and changes. You have different ways of expressing it in different time frames. And that's kind of what I'm looking at right now is looking at management and looking at it as something that is changeable and tangible. It isn't something that you set on a pedestal and you basically say it can never change. If you want change, you need to be that change. Thank you so much, Teresa. Other questions?